postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. In today's podcast, I'm going to be talking with an author. Isn't that cool? Um, And he is an author who's really recently written a book that absolutely blew my mind. I had a chance to read the manuscript just to kind of offer some feedback. And wow, it was such an amazing book. And I'm going to talk all about that in you know the, the coming hour. So I'm just going to pause right now. I'm going to introduce this amazing guy. And uh, we're just going to get to know him a little bit. And the guy that I'm talking about, in case you've never heard of him, or in case you have, his name is Matthew J. Corpman. Did I get that right, Matthew? You definitely nailed it. I nailed it. Okay, because like on Facebook, I see Reeves as well. So I'm like, which one is it? Oh, it's it's Cortman. It's, it's Cortman. It's okay. Reeves is just a, a pen name that has kind of uh, always been with me for a long time. So people <laughs> on there know me as both. Okay. All right. Beautiful. Beautiful. So awesome, man. Well, look, Matthew, I'm I'm super stoked to have you on the podcast today. You're the author of the book "Saying No to God: A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully." And I want to talk about that in a little bit and 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 get into um, some of the content that's in that book, which is pretty awesome. But before uh, before I do that, I just want to spend a few moments getting to know um, the man behind the book. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the legend of Matthew. Wow, I never thought I was going to be associated with a famous video game title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so those laughing, no, those not. I'm sorry. Um, so I don't know about a legend. Um, but, uh, currently, um, I am a, uh, master of arts and religion student at Yale Divinity School, focusing on second temple Judaism. So that's just a fancy way of saying that my specialty is the period of the rise of early Christianity and early Judaism before the fall of the temple. So I get to study lots of the earliest traditions of the Jews um, at the time of Jesus, look at uh, apocryphal books and material, uh, really delve into a large range of stuff. Also, because that period of time has to deal so much with the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, I have to be equally trained in kind of the history of ancient Israel as well. So it's a very interdisciplinary kind of study that I'm always involved in. I'm either, you know, far back in the time of, you know, the Old Testament or I'm super ahead looking at the very edge with Gnosticism. I'm all over the place, but I like that. I'm a very interdisciplinary kind of guy. So that's where I'm at now. Where I came from, um, I graduated from La Sierra University in Riverside, California. So... Um, I got to study under some really cool Adventist scholars before I went off to the big leagues over at Yale. And uh, to be honest, um, they perfectly prepared me for my education (laughs) that I went to. 
So I'm very happy to say that my Adventist education at La Sierra was um, was really good at the Divinity School. And uh, my background, I've been, before La Sierra, um, I had been born and raised an Adventist. I have been pretty much in the Adventist culture for my whole life um, and uh, grew up watching televangelists um, was baptized by Mark Finley. Wow. Um, I've, I've, I've been in the bubble definitely <laughs> for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, and even when you escape the bubble, you, you're still in the bubble. That's right. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the Adventist way. Right on, man. That <laughs> is, it's that not is awesome. Yeah. No, that's, I, that's true. I, I think that's what I love sometimes about um, these groups like the Haystack uh, that can kind of capture some of those, um, some of those unique aspects of Adventist culture and maybe poke a little bit of fun at it and you can kind of laugh at yourself and be like, yeah, that is true about us. You know, it's kind of like a, it's nice, you know, or barely Adventist, you know, they, uh, <laughs> they go at it pretty, pretty, pretty rough sometimes. It is so funny. Yeah. It's like, I have hey. a, I have a blog on uh, Pathios um, where I, my first post, cause I wanted the blog, like, you know, my book, I wanted the blog to be, aimed at all Christians, but then distinctively still Adventists. So my first blog post was, uh, if I remember the title right, um, what was it? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and we're pretty weird, or so, yes, something yes. like that. And <laughs> and the blog post got a lot of love. Um, <laughs> uh, mixed reactions toward the title from other Adventists, but a lot of love because like the truth is, when you start to look at objectively how we are compared to how other denominations are outside of the issue of like the Sabbath and, you know, state of the dead. Some of those, we are very strange in, <laughs> I think some positive ways yeah. from how like other people do their Christian thing, especially when so many Christians usually group us with evangelicalism. When you actually like start to look at these different views and compare them, you're like, man, like the only reason evangelicals would think we're one of them is because they barely know about us. <laughs> Just once you start highlighting the differences, yeah. you start becoming their arch heretic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like put aside Ellen White. Like there's no need to bring her into it. Our yeah. own beliefs apart from her already put us in such a unique category. But it's fun because, mm. you know, it gives you such a unique perspective on yeah. Christianity Absolutely. and such a unique way to deliver your message as wow. compared to how, you know, most other people do it. And that's really good. I think Adventism usually strikes in many ways a middle ground approach mm -hmm. from how the extremes usually are on either side. Yeah. And I don't think that we tend to think of it that way. But I think that if we were to pay more attention to that middle ground that we usually stake out for ourselves, it would be really helpful to other denominations to say, oh, you mean there is, an, there is a way in which we're not either right or left? There is a way? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, there is a way. It's called the Bible. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. I got to tell you, though, I was a little disappointed um, when, when I discovered that Adventists are not, in fact, the only ones who eat haystacks. I, I, felt, I felt a little bit like, oh, oh, no, I thought that was our thing. Um, although I was encouraged by the fact that most, I think the Mennonites um are into haystack and i can't remember the other denomination it might have been the jehovah's witnesses but they do do them slightly different from us so i was like okay we're still kind of weird in that respect 
But um, I was actually surprised. I was like, I thought we were the only haystackers in the world, but apparently we're not. So, I mean, but when you try to tell somebody who's like not not into any of these subcultures, just True. a random person on the street, they'll just point at Taco Bell and be like, yeah, yeah. "So can't you just order one over there?" <laughs> it's like so true, what you're man. describing here is not really that that yeah. unique. Like you gave it a name, but like, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, so like you, you mean that thing over there? Okay, you just have a funny name for it. That's all. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hey, look, uh, by the um, way, I say something very blasphemous here. Yep, yep. I'm not like a giant fan of haystacks. Oh, no, that is all, oh, bro. I, I, that is I, huge I, blasphemy. I put a reference into it in my book in the beginning because I knew an Adventist out there would like it. <laughs> like it. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's like I remember when I came to college and orientation had haystacks. I was like, ugh, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> well, made- thankfully, <laughs> um, thankfully, this is a podcast that is uh, welcoming of a diversity of ideas um, so Good. it's okay, man. It's okay. Your heresy is is safe here. So it's, I'm it's glad okay. I found an inclusive community. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is cool. Well, look, uh, I want to spend some time talking about your book, man. Um, that was that was a pretty pretty radical and, and awesome book. Before I do though, I, I just want to ask you one more sort of silly question, um, and then and then we can then we can dive into the deep stuff. Um, so here's here's my question. Um, do you have like a favorite Netflix show? Well, I tend to watch on Netflix usually more movies than TV shows. So I okay. think I've you can the last too. show that I've delved into was uh, Stranger Things. Yeah. Um, but I, I stopped at the second season, so I haven't watched oh, the new new season. Third so season is the best. Okay, so okay, good. I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> well, you know, for as a long as... time, my wife and I didn't, you know, we, we saw it advertised and we weren't interested because it looked like um, it looked like the kind of show that was sort of like, you know, poltergeist type stuff. And that's not really yeah. a genre. We don't really enjoy that. But then, you know, someone told us <laughs> it's not like that at all. It, it, some of the previews might look that way, but it's, it's a sci-fi about different dimensions. And so we're like, all right, we'll give it a go. And then it was just like, we just, you know, we fell in love with the kids and just the storyline. Mm-hmm. And third season's the best, bro. I'm telling you, you got to sit down and you got to check it out. You're probably too busy but these days. But... Again, I, I, I want to be that heretic, you know, early <laughs> on. Here. So I'm just going to say, like, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, like, that's, <laughs> that's where it's at. Baby Yoda. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like, according to, like, you know, sort of entertainment news. Um, the Mandalorian did bypass Stranger Things uh, in terms of uh, streams. It bypassed um, every single yeah. TV show in the world. It's the yeah, number, yeah, it was definitely. number one number TV one. show. Yeah. Anywhere. So, um, so that's you know that's that's a thing going back. Like I don't know. Like I tried. Like I think I lasted about fifteen minutes of the first episode. My wife lasted two. The moment she saw an alien, she was done. Um, that very first scene where the guy walks into the, uh, the, the, you know, the bounty hunter walks into that um, bar and there's that alien who's getting beat up. And he, you know, as soon as she saw his face, she was like, ah, no. <laughs> um, and, and I was like, oh, I'll give it a bit more of a go because come on, it's, it's like the most streamed show in the world right now. There's got to be something, but you know, but then I was like, nah. I'm... You got to wait till baby Yoda comes on at the end of the episode. Like that's, that's the heart of the show. It's him and the Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the deal. Anyway, <laughs> I do approve of the baby Yoda memes. They're, they're pretty remarkable. 
And in fact, actually, the Baby Yoda memes, I begin, I'm beginning to think, could actually be a really good example of how apocryphal traditions get started. Because I'm noticing that, like, lots of people, like, we all know that the memes are totally unrelated to the show. Yeah, like, yeah. none of them actually <laughs> happen. But then, like, right. at the same time, people still reference those memes every time we talk about Baby Yoda. That's right. So yeah. it's it's like, wow, this is kind of a unique phenomenon. Like, we all know it didn't happen historically in the show, but we're all referencing it yeah. as if it's integral to the character we talk about. <laughs> and that makes me then think, like, is that how early Christian Apocrypha started? Like, how yeah. did Christians, like, reference stories about Jesus's miracle childhood? Uh, I'm not talking about in the Gospels for those listening, but I'm talking about, like, the Apocryphal Gospels, like, of the infancy of Thomas and stuff, where there's, like, stories extra about Jesus's childhood. It yeah. makes me wonder, like... Did, did that happen? Did like people know this isn't true? And then they would just like, that they felt like the story encapsulated something about Jesus. Yeah. So they would, they would tell the story and they'd all laugh and be like, Oh, that's a, it. It's, it's interesting just to see like people knowing that something is not actually part of the story, Yeah. but then they still have to feel like they need to reference it in relationship to it as that's if so it had true. some kind of essence yeah. to the character in spite of the fact that it's not real. Anyways, I've just been having those. <laughs> no, it's deep, because bro. of my degree. That's, that's like a whole other conversation, man. That's some, that, that, it is. That, it but is. That's true, man. Like that's, oh man, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to go down that track, but then I know we will never get to, to yeah, the actual yeah, yeah, point yeah. of the... I can get distracted. <laughs> Let's keep going. Well, good stuff. Good stuff, man. This is what happens when you get an academic on the, uh, on the podcast. And now, this know, is what happens when any, you any little thing is an explosion of intriguing interest. So, um, with that said, man, let's, let's dive into this, uh, let's dive into this book, man. So you, you wrote this book saying no to God, um, a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully. Now you sent me the manuscript. You were like, Hey, read this, check it out. Tell me what you think. And, uh, it took me forever. Cause I was so busy last year. I think you remember that. Like I've got three churches and I had to wait till I went on holiday <laughs> to actually like have the time to, to sit down and read this thing. Um, and there's a review coming out, I believe on compass magazine at some point, um, in maybe the next two weeks, I think I'm not entirely sure. Um, so for those of you who are listening, you can, you can check out that review on the compass magazine if you'd like, but we'll probably talk about it all here. But anyways, bottom line, um, it was a phenomenal book, fantastic, fantastic book on two levels. And I want to sort of pick your brain and get not just the content of the book, but also the heart behind it. Um, it was, it was fantastic because you read the title and you're like, there's no way there could be any truth in this book. You, know? <laughs> you like, would not be the first person to have that no thought to God, you know, like this is n no, <laughs> I'm saying no to the book. Um, but yeah, like I actually, <laughs> I didn't fully know what to expect. And then I start reading the book and I'm like, wow, this is actually like, really really cool so i'm not you know gonna like uh, spoil you know we'll, we'll talk about some of the content in a bit but i i i want you to sort of give us a quick definition of what that means because i think like once i saw the definition i was like oh i'm in for something really cool here um and then just tell us a little bit about your heart behind the book like why did you why did you get into this project into writing this manuscript well i guess i'll reverse the order of how you said that because then one Go will lead it. naturally into the other yeah. so where it all started was that, um, well, I guess in a certain sense where it all started is even way before. So growing up in Adventism, 
um, listening to very famous televangelists constantly, um, uh, Doug Batchelor, Sean Boonstra, um, David Ashrick, oh, um, Kenneth Cox, you know, just really, like, I was exposed to 3ABN and, and everything, and one of those things that's unique about Adventism that I was kind of alluding to that's different than, of course, the mainstream culture of, of most Christians is that we don't actually have debates about inerrancy. You know, our denomination does not actually uh, adhere to a doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture, and yet we're heavily influenced by the groups that do. So mm-hmm. even though a, a Doug Batcher never has to have an episode that talks about inerrancy or teaches inerrancy as a doctrine, like you might have a John Piper of the world do, um, you actually do end up getting the implication of inerrancy through their messages, because the way that they'll treat the Bible is inerrant, even though they are not actually spelling it out, they're never making it a doctrinal point. You'll never see, as far as I know, I haven't been keeping up with with, uh, Pastor Batchelor recently, but as far as I know, you'll never see like a single episode that's like, you know, the doctrine of inerrancy, and that right before he goes to the Mark of the Beast in a seminar, you know, it's it's just presumed the way he approaches it. So growing up, I assumed inerrancy in a very implicatory kind of amateur way. I just figured, well, right, there's this assumption that everything we're reading here is exactly true and right, and it's just exactly what God wanted, and so there you go. Um, And unless you knew Adventist history, you wouldn't know that actually there was this big debate and Adventists tried to steer a middle course. So for me, coming from that background that I was exposed to, Um, It was surprising to me as I grew up and read the Bible that there were stories in the Bible in which that concept didn't seem to work. Now, typically, when people are commenting on it or discussing inerrancy, they're usually trying to find the errancy part of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to say, well, let me try to find the problem that shows the Bible has an error. And the problem with this is that it's it's just not the right approach because people's minds can basically defend anything. Yeah. Um, if you you know look at any country on earth who has a bombastic leader and look at the people who support that bombastic leader and they will usually claim if they're you know not outright you know uh, terrible people they will claim oh no you're misunderstanding him oh no uh, you're this you're that and for anyone who's listening going oh I think I know who he's referring to. Believe me, there are plenty of bombastic leaders in this world today. So <laughs> you are projecting a certain individual in your head, and that you're free to do that. But don't assume yeah. that I have more than uh, that. I have only one person in mind. People tend to defend whatever they want. So that means that even if you did find an actual error in the Bible, people would not agree about it. And you see that in the number of books conservatives put out to show defenses for what an error could be, not an error. So yeah, yeah. it's a bad argument because essentially you can always debate the errors and try to not accept what someone says. So what I'm talking about is that when I would read the Bible, I would find stories in which the idea of inerrancy would be undermined. Not that there was an error, but that the Bible didn't give me the belief that even if there was no errors, it would still be okay. Mm. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when I was in uh, undergraduate study, I think it was my junior year, 
I was taking a course with uh, an ethics professor, and Socrates' dilemma, um, known as Euthyphro's dilemma, was brought up in class. And, you know, this is a very famous dilemma that people reference where Socrates says, what is the relationship between goodness and the Greek gods? And he says, well, um, do the gods like something because it's good? Well, if they do, then goodness is distinct from the gods. The gods just recognize that it's good. And so that's why they tell us that it's good. Mm. Well, okay, that's one option. The other option is the gods tell us it's good, and that's why it's good. So goodness is arbitrary. Mm. It's whatever the god declares it is, and nothing else matters. Um, well, and this is, Euthyphro's dilemma basically comes down to the problem that neither option is good. <laughs> neither option answers what people want to hear, which is you want to believe that something is both intrinsically good and also that God is the author of goodness. <clears throat> so Socrates doesn't give you that ability. <clears throat> Excuse me. Socrates doesn't give you that ability. So that leaves people in this strange position when they first hear it, where they're like, I don't know what I think about this. Like, I, this, I don't feel good. And so different scholars have tried to come up with different ways of phrasing the issue, but each one doesn't really get to the heart of it, if mm. you really want to like, get there. Um, so what really bothered me was just recognizing that like, the way that the Bible presents a number of stories is that they defy this dilemma because they don't operate on the premises that Socrates gives it. So, mm. for example... Um, the best way to kind of show the problem here would be, say, like the story of Moses in Exodus 32. Here we have a story in which God tells Moses on Sinai, um, while the Israelites are making the golden calf, that, hey, uh, this is all bad. I'm really, really upset. Uh, Moses, stand back. I'm going to murder every last man, woman, and child down there. And I'm going to regret that I ever saved them from Egypt. And I'm going to start over with your family, redo everything. Now, Moses, according, like, if we think about this in terms of the dilemma, uh, we would say, well, if Moses believes that goodness is related directly from God's command, then what God says is always good. So that means he has to accept whatever God says because it's good. So he has no right to argue. If, however, Moses argues um, and says no God and God accepts it, then that means goodness is distinct from God. And that's why Moses appeals to it against God. Mm. That would be the, the dilemma. Now, it is true in the story, Moses argues with God. He says, no, you can't do it. If you do, it's evil. And God agrees with Moses and says, OK, I'm not going to do it then. Yep. It's a very striking story in Exodus 32. Striking story. Here's the problem that throws it all off. Moses argues that God can't do it. Um, but when he argues for that position, he says and appeals to God for the reason why God shouldn't do it. Mm. It's not like he just says it's evil. But he also makes the argument that it isn't the way of God. Mm. So this is a really interesting thing. Moses believes it's wrong because God taught him it was wrong. He believes it's wrong because God 
embodies the fact that it's wrong. So when he tells God no, he's appealing to God for the reason why it's no. Mm. And this is striking for me when I was uh, in that class because I recognized this is not Euthyphro's dilemma because Moses still believes that God is the author of morality, but he believes that he can reject God on the basis of how God was previously. So now you have this weird situation where God is both the very being of morality, but God is also treated potentially as distinct. Mm. So there's this weird dilemma. And the funny thing is, it happens all over the Bible. It's not just a story. It happens again and again and again. So for me, I realized, wait a minute, Euthyphro's dilemma is is not applicable to the Bible. Mm. It is not the same dilemma. The Bible has another way of conceptualizing the relationship between morality and God that is distinct from how the Greeks were trying to formulate it. And that excited me for the first time because I remembered that story in Exodus and I said, hmm, this doesn't make sense. How can this, what is the biblical view? So given that, um, there was another aspect too. So there was the Euthyphro's dilemma part where I'm like, all right, Socrates, interesting. Then there was the issue of inerrancy. And so one of the things, again, why I brought it up earlier, we tend to think about inerrancy as like, okay, how do, how do I figure out if the Bible is the right words of God so that I can follow it and believe it and do what it says? Almost all of our debates have centered for the last hundred plus years on just yelling at each other whether or not we have a text that is inerrant. If you talk to a liberal, <laughs> <So> true, <bro. laughs> if you talk to a liberal, or if you talk to a conservative, the funny thing is they both agree on inerrancy. Mm. And that's the funny thing that people just don't think about because they can't step outside that debate. They're so stuck in it. The liberal believes as much usually in inerrancy as the conservative. The thing that they disagree on is whether or not the text is inerrant, right? Mm. They all pretty much would agree that if you could get God and you knew this was his holy, right, then they wouldn't know what to say as an argument per se, most Mm. of them. It would, a liberal would go, oh, well, I guess I'll give up the argument and we'll go with it. Usually the argument is, how can you believe the text is inerrant because of this, 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 this. But now Euthyphro's dilemma and the story in Exodus 32 created another problem, which was Moses had inerrancy. Mm. Moses had the inerrant word of God direct in person and Moses rejected it. Yeah. And he was right to reject it. Mm. And God praised him for rejecting. See, now there was a new problem. Not only was Socrates having an issue in my head with not understanding the biblical conception of morality and God, but it seemed like there was a fundamental flaw with the entire debate over inerrancy, which was that, in fact, the Bible doesn't tell you that it would help you to have an inerrant text. Because even when you have the inerrant voice, it doesn't mean you just accept what it says. Mm. So where the title saying no to God comes from is stories like this, in which Moses tells God no, and God praises Moses for having said no, and affirms that Moses was right to have said no. Now, it's still radical. It's still radical, and by no means is it limited to Moses. There are countless other stories in Scripture, even some that I didn't reference in the book itself, that mm-hmm. go over this. 
And that is really important because when someone says, all right, so what does it mean to say no to God? In short, it means in the good way. I mean, any saying no to God could encompass both good and bad ways. But in the good way, it means really in short for my book, you are appealing to God to say no to something from God that does not appear to match who God is. Mm. So that is really a sense of logical coherency. If God is good and then God is not good, I appeal and say no to what is not good in defense of what God has always been, which is good. That's right. And that's now, precisely what, what, what Moses does, where he says, you know, if you, yeah. if you slaughtered these people, you know, what will people say of you? You know, you took these people out of Egypt and you brought them here to the desert to slaughter them. And he's appealing to his character and his, you know, his, his reputation in the sense that this, this doesn't match you. Like, this isn't you. Even though you're saying this is what I'm going to do, it's not you. So no, don't do it. You know, like yeah. And so one of the things that is really interesting about this is that this concept of saying no and these stories um, have. It's not like I'm the first person to to go ahead and say, oh, this is this is a really striking idea. This is a really interesting thing. People have been talking about this for a very, very long time. Um, it's just no one's written a book length treatment on it. People have have commented on it, uh, very famous people, but not necessarily uh, a book length treatment. And that's kind of important because what people have to tease out here is what does it mean when God suddenly changes what he's saying? Right. So when God says, I want to do this, this is my holy will. And then Moses says no. And God's like, yep. What do you do with that? Well, you know, is God changing his mind? Um, and so when people hear these stories, the reason why pastors skip past them all the time is because they don't want to deal with the aspect of God's changeability. They don't want to try to comment on it because the text seems to suggest heavily that God changed his mind and they don't want to go that route. The problem is, because they're trying to avoid that problem, they've avoided dealing with the more interesting problem. How does a man like Moses or any human being have the right to tell God no? Yeah. How do they get that right? How do they find that ability? And why does God reward them for it? So, yeah. so like I think of it in my head as, you know, Moses there in the mountain and there's this frightening spectacle of God's presence and, you know, like you don't even walk up to the mountain or you could be killed. Um, it's just like this, you know, glorious, scary, you know, trembling. And, and yet somehow in the midst of this, when God says, this is what I'm going to do, Moses has within himself some logic that says you can actually say no here, you know. And, and so for me, it's like in that circumstance, would I be like, would I argue with God? You know, or or would I be like, all right, whatever you say, you know, you're God, I'm just a man. You know what I mean? Like something is in Moses's head that's kind of like, no, you know, and I'm like, well, where does that what is that thing? Where does it come from? Right. And it's interesting that in the following chapter, because like the whole incident really carries from chapter 32 to 34, 
because it's in 30, like they have this back and forth um, argument of words back and forth where God's like, these are your people, you brought them. And Moses is like, no, these are your people and you brought them. And it's kind of like two children fighting with each other. And it's not till <laughs> chapter 34 that God ends up revealing himself to Moses and gives this huge speech in which everything Moses fought for is declared to be truly who God is. And it's like this beautiful moment. But in between, in the midst of this argument, the chapter, um, the writer tells us that Moses and, and, and um, God's argument with each other is what it means for them to speak to each other as friends. Mm. And it's this fascinating verse in chapter 33 um, that this is somehow what we should understand friendship between humanity and the divine as. That it is this, this, this argumentative, passionate defense that involves potentially confronting the divine and it just totally strikes us in our religiosity as just like opposite of how we've been trained to imagine what, you know, the relationship between the divine and human is, which is, you know, we're much more in our heads imagining something like, you know, um, Aaron's sons putting unholy fire and being consumed by God for having it <laughs> right. That's the image of like, you have to obey or you die, yeah. right? But then we have these stories where it's like, wait a minute, this, it seems like everything's turned upside down. How is it that, you know, Moses can get away with this? How is it that God goes along with it? And I think that what becomes really interesting about this kind of approach is how people have noticed that there's like people like Martin Luther have noticed that there is a dilemma here that you can easily miss, which is Moses is not. When Moses argues against God for not doing this, he stakes it in who God's been. Mm. So um, in another story, um, said even better, Abraham's arguing with God, and Abraham says, far be it from you to do this thing. Yeah. And this is another story very similar to Moses' story. But in this version, again, the words used by Abraham are very similar to when Moses says, you know, show me the ways I know about you. It's, it's that they're making a defense of God in who God's been. So they're not saying when God suddenly at the end agrees with them, he's not, God is not actually in their minds, you know, changing. He's changing what he just said, but he's not actually changing. They're making a claim that for God to change is to go back to who God really is, not mm. this. This is the change, this weird idea that they're fighting against. So what's unique about that is to kind of look at the question of, um, what Martin Luther argued in his theology, which is, if God's not actually changing, then is God testing? Mm. Is this, in fact, God pushing people to test whether they know him? And it's such an interesting um, idea that the best modern analogy for it that I know, because <clears throat> like for Luther, he imagines it like a game, um, but uh, perhaps more dramatically, we can imagine it like in a movie. So in a movie, you'll have like this, this scene. And let's, let's imagine, you know, the husband has been taken hostage. And he has been told that um, he's going to be taken away or whatever because he's been involved in this crime syndicate. Who knows? Just imagine all these details, make it all spicy. And um, he's like, I've got to uh, let go of my wife. I can't, you know, I, I can't allow her to, um, to, to be involved in this. So they give, they give them one last chance to meet. The wife doesn't know anything. 
And so, you know, you, the husband comes to the wife and tells her, Hey, um, I want to break, I want to, I'm divorcing you. I'm leaving you. Um, I, I don't want to ever see you again. I hate you. I don't want to be with you. Right. Why is he doing that? Well, the audience knows the, he wants her to not be hurt when, you know, whatever happens to him happens. So he's trying to push her away by acting totally out of character and saying the worst things. Now, what makes the movie work usually, not always, but usually the plot device is that the wife in this case recognizes that her husband is not acting at all normal. The husband has, in fact, um, gone way off the mark. So while she's hurt terribly by the words, she doesn't actually let herself believe that these words accurately depict who her husband is. Mm. She knows instinctively something isn't right. This isn't like him. So then when he leaves, she pursues secretly because she knows something must be wrong here. She knows him well enough to not believe these words. Mm. So in that sense, I think you have something akin to what may be occurring in these stories in the Bible. And that's what I argue that God is really testing in a sense to see, do you Moses recognize a difference between what I previously taught you as my will and what I'm currently telling you as my will. Mm. If you know the difference, you know my heart. If you don't know the difference, then you could switch me out for Moloch and there'd be no difference. Wow. Right? So then that comes to another distinct issue, which is why do you worship Yahweh as opposed to Moloch or Marduk or Isis or any of these other gods? What is the distinctive reason for why you worship him as opposed to any other? And the problem becomes the question of, you know, content versus just identity, right? So, yes, Yahweh saved you. Okay, that might be a good reason for why you worship him, right? The Ten Commandments kind of operate. The I am the, the God who brought you out of Egypt. You know, that's kind of the reason you should you should care about me, right? But the question is, does God expect you to only care about him because he brought you out of Egypt? Or is it the fact that he freed you and is a liberator that makes him worthy of you being mm-hmm. safe, right? In other words, what is the emphasis in that opening speech in the commandments? I was the one who saved you, so you should worship me, or I'm the only God who saves, and because I save, that makes me a God worthy of you wanting to worship, as opposed to the other gods who didn't do anything for you, right? They were keeping you captive. So in that sense, then, what you really see here is a question of what really drives our motivation to believe in God, and what, what does it mean to trust in God Am I trusting just the fact that this is the name of the God that I worship, or is his character intrinsic to why I worship him? Now, of course, as Christians, we should think immediately the answer is character, because after all, when Jesus comes to the earth as the incarnate living image of God, right, it's his character that sells us on who God is. It's his character that is the revelation of God's love that helps get us straight in regards to our theology and what we understand, right? It's it's not that Jesus comes down and proves to everybody, look, I'm the incarnate God, fall at your feet. It's that God, that God has come in human form to convince us of what God's heart is, right? This is the invisible God made visible. Guess what? Jesus was invisible to most of the religious leaders. They mm-hmm. didn't see him. Because they were looking for this specific character 
they weren't paying attention to the content that would reveal and make visible this invisible God, which is love. So what we see here with Moses is this unique moment in which a character has inerrancy given to them, right? Guaranteed, God says it, he really did say it. But (laughs) that's not good enough, because if Moses doesn't know God's heart, he wouldn't be able to reject what God says. Mm. So when you kind of unravel that, now you come to the heart of like what my book is, is kind of wrestling with, which is this unique idea of, well, what does that mean for us today? Like, you know, one of the interesting things, Ellen White talks about this. Um, and she comments in, in two places on the story in Exodus 32. And she agrees, she argues that it's a test that God, that if Moses obeyed God, according to her, he loses. Mm. If, if he at any moment says, your will be done, he fails. And the reason he fails is because if he accepts God's proposal, he's selfish. Because what God's proposal was is, I'm going to start everything over with you. Forget all these other people. Forget all your neighbors. I'm going to just let you as the individual benefit. And so Ellen White sees here this huge test in regards to, do you not only understand the character of God's morality, but do you understand what it means to love other people above yourself? Mm. And will you take the easy road instead of that? Right. I'm really sad to say that there are some Bible scholars I've read who've published books in which they comment on this story and they go, well, if it was me, maybe I would have been selfish and just killed them all. Mm. <laughs> it shocks me it's to wild, be like, wow, yeah. did that, you really say that? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. don't think that that's <laughs> just a little a little Hitler-esque, like, yeah. okay, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Remind me not to be next to you. Um, yeah, in no such kidding, a... bro. <laughs> but the wow. thing is, is that you, you realize, as Ellen White sees it, this is a test to really get to the heart of not only how do you understand God's character, but have you embodied it in yourself in how you would look at other people. Absolutely. So yeah. that is just one of those unique things that kind of drives you to say, okay, if it's true for Moses, right, and if it's true for Abraham, and if it's true for these other characters, right, okay, what does that mean for me? Because Mm. if people can have a guaranteed inerrant voice talking to them, and they can argue on these grounds against God, and God is in support of it, what does that have to say about us as readers of a non-inerrant text, especially mm. as Advent readers who yeah. don't support inerrancy. How, what does that then mean about how our hermeneutic of Scripture works? What, how does this principle apply to us when we don't have a voice that can talk back to us? Mm. Who can, you know, like in these cases, you know, it's very easy. The moment that Moses keeps pushing, God eventually confirms you're right. But as, um, as a, a rabbi who I've read recently, you know, puts it, and I'm quoting him in the book, he goes ahead and says, yeah, that's great. But, but unlike, you know, these characters, we don't get an answer. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we read something, we're reading Joshua, and we go, this is not right, God, what you're doing with the, the Canaanites. Well, whether or not we say it's not right, there's no answer. The text mm-hmm. doesn't change. Yep. So we get into um, this unique position that is very similar to these stories and yet also distinct. Mm. And in that respect, that's really like the heart of the book is trying to make sense of all that and pull it together. And the thing that I 
absolutely love about this perspective. And uh, I just want to make it like a, just a quick comment from a pastoral perspective um, is that this is something that I see repeatedly um, in church culture, right? So you'll have the mom and the dad, the proverbial mom and dad who literally strangle their kids with standards that they're supposed to be obedient to and just drive their kids up the wall. And then their kids come to the pastor and they're like, you know, trying to find answers and trying to find relief. Um, and the home becomes this coercive, authoritarian, tyrannous environment. And the moment these kids get the chance to run off, they're gone, right? Like they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with Adventism or church. They're just, they're gone. They, they need some space. Um, and what I've found is that if you ask the parents, like, what are you doing? They will say, we are being obedient to the revealed word of God. Like, they're not thinking about it. They're not wrestling with it. They're not trying to use common sense. In fact, the use of common sense is almost like, oh, you're just trying to justify disobedience, right? Um, and so this is what I love about this book that you've written is that you're highlighting that it doesn't matter what you're, what you're interacting with you have to have the heart of God is the primary lens through which we understand everything else. And if you're not approaching your faith that way, if you're not approaching scripture that way and, and the application of your faith that way, then you're not actually being faithful, even though you think you are, you know, like you're doing the opposite. Um, and you, you make examples of this. And I want to, I want to turn to this because this was just like, and, and by the way, for those of you who are listening, like there's tons more stories in the book where, you know, Matt talks about like different examples of people saying, saying no to God. Um, there's tons more stories in the book that you extrapolate that meaning from that. Um, but I want to, I want to jump over to where you actually get into some of the historical like examples of how bad things can be when Christians have this, you know, when Christians don't argue with God, for example. Um, because that's the point of the book. Like I loved everything up to that point, but when you got into that, when you got into like history and you looked at like things like slavery, et cetera, like that's the point where it just really left with meaning. Cause I was like, wow, if we don't understand the heart of God and we're trying to apply his word without his heart, we can really do some major damage thinking we're making him happy, you know? So I want to, I want to get into that. Take us, take us into some of those historical examples that you see is really standing out and showing us why this is so important. Well, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the so you know, the first part of the book is really like the first half because the book split into two halves. Like the first mm -hmm. half is really just as you said, like lots of stories, stories about Jesus, stories about Jacob, stories about you know Job, stories which you really dig into this theme of divine confrontation and mm. recognize what is like that common thread that runs through them all. And it's so interesting to see, as, as I argue in the book, that there are stories of Jesus doing the exact same thing so that you see like this is not this isn't just a, 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 an Old Testament phenomenon. Like when Jesus comes as the incarnate image of God, he, ref, he reaffirms that this same approach to humanity stays the same with him, that this is still going forward. This is the way God works. He still cares about you understanding his character more than ever. And that's fantastic because, you know, as a Christian, you want to see that continuity. 
You know, it, even if it wasn't, you'd still have to take it seriously. But it really helps to see that when God comes as a human, he's still operating the same way as he did with his fellow followers. Absolutely. So then you move and, to and the And it's sec- interesting, just, just, just by, just yeah. to like, just inject this in there. It's interesting that the corpus of the Gospels, there's this tension between Jesus as the revealed word of God um, in, this, in this tension that you speak of. Um, but the, the people that he clashes with the most are the ones who have a literal interpretation of the text and who have this unbending unflexible application of what they're reading in the old testament so it's really interesting that you know like here's the son of god who is the embodiment of god himself he is the fullness of the godhead and he clashes with the people who in many ways take his revealed word most seriously and it's like what do you Mm -hmm. do with that you know and 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 part of the problem in in that clashes between Jesus and these religious leaders is that the religious leaders will look at a text and they take it, you know, I mean, I, I, you could say literally, but I mean, they just take it as it says. So like when, you know, if, if the law, you know, and people forget because we don't read Leviticus, we don't read Exodus past chapter 21 that often. So (laughs) So like people forget that like everything we call the Mosaic law, is said in scripture to be from the mouth of God, exactly. right? It's not that it says Moses came up with this. Mm-hmm. It's that it says, and God said the law and God told Moses, here's quote the law, right? And we forget this. So we think like, oh yeah, well, that's just the mosaic. Well, it's like, it is <laughs> in scripture. It's pretty clear. God said this, right? Yeah. So the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they understand that and they say, okay, well, God said this, right? But then like what's really fantastic, right, is like a good example is the issue of pick, like um, when the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. Mm. And, you know, Jesus turns to these religious leaders who are like, look, they are working on the Sabbath. The laws in the Bible that God explicitly gave said you are not to go picking grain on the Sabbath, right? There's even stories, hello, of people gathering manna on the Sabbath and being killed by God. That's right. Hello. Like, I mean, like, that's a thing. Right. So it's not like there isn't precedence for um, for this this worry that they have. And so what does Jesus say when he comes back to them? Well, he says the line that we all remember really well, but he says something else that we don't. So the line we all remember really well is the Sabbath was made for man, um, not man for the Sabbath. Right. This is his underlying principle that he says. But then he says something else that almost every pastor avoids because (laughs) the implications of it are just so crazy when you think about it. He says, look, David, when he was hungry, walked into the tabernacle, grabbed some of the holy bread, ate it and went on his merry way. And he got away with it. God didn't strike him dead. (laughs) It's just the most crazy because I mean, Imagine putting that into a modern language, right? Imagine you're, you're, you have a, a congregant come to you as the pastor and they say, well, it was fine for me to break this, uh, this law or whatever or this belief that we hold because, you know, this character in the Bible did it and God didn't strike him dead for it. So, you know, <laughs> like this is exactly the kind of thing that we would say bad hermeneutic you can't yeah. look to you know no the, the the law comes first and then any of these examples must be judged by no jesus reverses it he goes mm-hmm. uh uh-uh. look at the example he was hungry he needed to eat so the law came second mm. why because of the principle 
So it's just a very interesting thing, and it's not like this is a one-time thing Jesus does. He does this repeatedly, and it's so interesting, you know, how, how far he'll push it, because, you know, eventually he'll get pushed regarding other laws, and he'll say, well, actually, the Bible was wrong. It wasn't God who commanded that. It was Moses who put that in, right? But again, like, how would you have ever known that? Mm. Right. This is what makes the, the, the Jesus confrontation so fascinating is that you would never have known in the Bible itself prior to Jesus having that confrontation that Moses was the one. Right. Mm. You would have said, oh, that's just some historical critical nonsense that you're mm. trying to add. You're adding your liberal bias. You don't trust <laughs> what it says. And the text clearly yeah. says God said this and you want to doubt it. You want to assume that Moses, because he wrote it down, added in stuff of his own. You are a terrible liberal hack. Yeah. And then Jesus comes wrong. No, this law, this law isn't God's intention at all. In fact, Moses is the reason it's there. <laughs> what? He didn't say that. It was just one of the many laws that God said he was in. Yeah, that's the problem. We are looking at the Bible in the same way that the religious leaders did. We take it at face value. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The mm. problem is that neither Jesus nor the rest of Scripture supports that premise. Mm. Just because God says it does not, in fact, settle it and does not, in fact, mean that I should accept it. And it is that unique dynamic that then leads to the second part of the book that you're asking about, which is really, you know, okay, that's true. But then have we actually, is this actually a new concept to us? Is this really something that it sounds crazy for us in our heads, hmm. but is it really that odd? Is it really that odd compared to how we've always done things? And in truth, what you realize is, and I've long realized, we all have been practicing this kind of saying no to God for most of our Christian history. We just haven't done it consciously, right? So what we're, to give an example of this would be like, um, let's take Hebrews 6, for example, to start with the Bible itself. So in Hebrews 6, you actually are told um, that God uh, will not forgive you your sins after you've been baptized. There's this very well-known text uh, for people who have had it brought up to their attention by fanatics, where it <laughs> clearly states that there is only one time for, for repentance at your baptism, and if you fall away after, you are hopeless. There is no return. There is no second baptism. There is no, right? It's not assuming you could be second baptized. It's just assuming that there's only one baptism. You're only reborn once. It takes it very literally in Hebrews, this idea of being born again. And it assumes if you're born again, you can't just keep being born again. Mm -hmm. So it, it just, through that logic, Hebrews kind of goes, oh, okay, well then you only have that once. So if you sin afterwards in a major way, not like you understand Bible writers don't think of sin in the way that we kind of in the West have come to understand it. They're not going, oh, no, you thought a bad thought about someone you sinned. Yeah. They're, they're thinking more of like big, tangible community actions of sin or something like mm. you, 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 you reject Jesus or you do something else. Like they're thinking big scope. So in that respect, you fall away. OK, you can't come back. You, you're lost. You might as well do whatever you're going to do because you're not coming back. Now, this is really interesting because it is totally at odds with, like, the whole 
uh, corpus of the rest of the New Testament, because everything else is coming from a very different perspective, such as, you know, even Jesus' statement about you should forgive 70 times 7, your father is always forgiving, right? Like, the, the, the rest of the Gospels and epistles of Paul and stuff, they go in a totally different direction, that, that God's mercies are new every day. But Hebrews, as a writer, whoever's writing this anonymous letter, does not see that. So they're taking it very literally, and the funny thing is, most people did. We know from the early history in the church, most people did not agree with the plain statements in the Gospels by Jesus. They agreed with Hebrews. They mm-hmm. thought the logic of Hebrews made more literal sense than this crazy hippie love Jesus was talking about, which just kept going and going and going. Like, that's liberal stuff. No, no, they were, that can't be, you have to interpret those statements in the light of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Jesus is, is second to what Hebrews says, because Hebrews makes more sense to us in our limited human scope. Mm. So what you get is like in the second century, you have this letter written called, I'm not letter, you have this book written uh, prophetic called The Shepherd of Hermas. I'm not going to go yeah. all into it, but basically this is a famous apostolic writing uh, written by a second century Christian prophet who has these visions. And um, probably... I'd say probably like 20 years at earliest, maybe before, I mean, after Revelation was written. So it's still really like within that, that New Testament era. And he goes ahead and has a vision with this angel and he gets to reveal, guess what, guys, you actually can be forgiven more than once, but only one more time. (laughs) So now, so now it's like he takes the Hebrews and he goes, it's okay if you fall away you can come back once more. But if you fall away a second time, well, then that's it. You can't be done the third time. You know, you're screwed. So now it gets enlarged. And it's funny that this debate goes on in the church for hundreds of more years. People still are hyped up on the Hebrews and the Hermes idea, oh, can you be forgiven more than once? Well, not more than twice. It takes forever. But eventually what ends up happening is it reverses and the church starts to go, huh, actually... I think Jesus is the rule, and these statements about forgiveness and mercy are the rule, and actually Hebrews has to be underneath that. And so what ends up happening is because people start valuing those parts of Scripture and the Gospels more, they stop paying attention to Hebrews. And subsequently, of course, the Shepherd of Hermas really doesn't mean much anymore because the debate's kind of not interesting anymore. So Hermas kind of just falls out of favor because it doesn't offer anything like it did originally. No one cares about the debate anymore. So what's interesting about this is the reason why today it seems so obvious to us that that Hebrews 6 is just not the way we think about things is because eventually we made a decision to value one part of Scripture more than that because they were at odds with each other. We basically said no to Hebrews 6 on the principle that the character of God matched better with the gospel portrait than the logic that Hebrews 6 was trying to use. Mm. And that is an example of us rejecting a scripture without consciously doing it. It's not Mm. like we said altogether, we're not going to follow Hebrews 6 anymore. It's that we just started to focus more on another part of scripture, and then we just ignored and then, like, you see the same phenomenon occur in more recent times with slavery, where the Bible has no passage saying slavery is not the will of God. In fact, there's actually several passages in which God says, it is my will to enslave people. 
Um, there's, it, it, there's passages in the Old Testament where God says, you are to go out and enslave other nations, and you are to keep them your slaves for all eternity with no hope of getting out. Mm. Like, that's a that's in Leviticus. There, there are these rules that are there squeezed in between all these laws in which, and I go over that in the book, obviously, I, I outline each of those verses and kind of explore them, but they exist. Like the Bible doesn't just wink at slavery. Like people say, the Bible pretty much gives definitive support in many ways for it. Um, in fact, What's interesting is when the sla- when slavers were reading like the Curse of Ham, and for those that don't know the Curse of Ham story or its interpretation back in the 1800s, uh, and thank God it's not common anymore. But for those <laughs> that don't know, uh, basically in America, people read the story in Genesis about how when Noah was drunk um, and his son Ham, one of the three, came and saw him naked. He went to go tell his brothers. They came and brought a blanket and put it over him. And then um, what it says is that Noah woke up, looked at his son. And then it says he knew what he did, but the text never tells us what he did. And so um, then Noah curses Ham's son, uh, Canaan, and says Canaan is to be a slave to his brothers for all eternity, never to be removed as a slave. And... Uh, so this became known as the curse of Ham. For some reason or another, it came to be associated that Ham was the ancestor of the African nations. And so what became the American interpretation is that this was the curse of black skin. Mm -hmm. So slavers started to argue that it's perfectly acceptable to enslave black people in America forever because it's biblical. Noah cursed them. And so, so be it. It was terrible and erroneous exegesis. It was it did so much harm. But the crazy part is that the slavers were not wrong that this was the biblical intention. Mm. Because even though the group that they identified Ham's descendants with was wrong, the Bible writer did intend to argue that the Canaanites were supposed to have the same treatment. Mm. Right? This is this is the part where we can kind of miss the tree in the forest is that the Bible writer here, the intention of Noah's curse is to say, make the Canaanites your slaves forever. Like you can take them and not worry about it. Like, so just exactly what slavers thought they were doing to black people is exactly what the Bible writer here imagines that the Israelites should do towards the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, they've lost their, their humanity privileges. You get to now take them as your cattle. And, What's terrible is like when you start going through the texts of the Bible and you start realizing like it's not that people are misusing these texts. This is the intention of these texts. They may be misapplying them to new circumstances that they shouldn't, but this is the intention of the text. And if it bothers us to imagine black people and African descendants being given this treatment in any way or shape or form, it should bother us to imagine that Bible writers are also imagining this in a similar way for people in their day. To realize that if it's inhumane now, it didn't change being inhumane then, right? They may be blind to it. It doesn't change the principle. Um, So what's fascinating is to realize that when you try to say, you know, why did the South and America defend slavery so much to the point of war? And you read the pamphlets that these people talked about, they had every verse in the book to defend them. 
to defend their practices. And what their usual line was, it's so fun because it's so familiar to us. They argued, this is the inerrant word of God. Only a blaspheming, liberal, communist, socialist, atheist, and yes, they use all those terms, <laughs> would dare to argue against the word of God. If you reject slavery, you reject Christ. If you reject slavery, you reject Moses. You, you know, they went through it all. Mm. And so when you look at the abolitionists who fought against this, who were Christians, they don't base their arguments on a thus saith the Lord in the same kind of way in which their uh, slave opponents do because the slavers they did not you know they had all the strongest verses right imagine you have a verse that says you are to take from other nations and do this or you know the curse of hand right you have these interpretations and then you have an abolitionist come and they say but the heart of christ does not match this hmm that is, that is not a strong argument from a literalist perspective. Right? <laughs> That's right, I've yeah. got a verse <laughs> that tells me from God's own mouth to do this, and you're arguing that the heart of God doesn't seem to match this, so I should ignore what God literally said and go for his heart. Um, no, it just sounds yeah. like, you know, this is some crazy cuckoo, you know, liberal bananas. I'm not going to listen to you. But that was what the abolitionists staked their claims on. In fact, Ellen White, although obviously not a self-identified abolitionist, she did very much um, believe in the abolitionist cause. And she believed very strongly that uh, slavery was completely incompatible with Christianity. And she writes this letter to an Adventist who was um, who was, in fact, in support of slavery. And she says, look, if you don't give up your belief about slavery, uh, I am going to go ahead and recommend that you are kicked out of the Adventist church mm. because there's no communion available for someone like you because mm. your beliefs are so antithetical. But it's what she says and how she defends it that's so unique. She basically says that, you know, God has revealed his sacred, like, new truths to us. He has revealed these truths to us, and no matter what argument you could give, nothing can overcome that. Mm. And so since the slavers were making biblical arguments, even though she's avoiding using those exact words, the only arguments he would be making to her are biblical ones. So what she's saying is there are these new interpretive truths that we've come to realize about the heart of God. And it doesn't matter what scripture says, I reject it. Mm. Right? And But why? On the basis of the God of scripture, which is revealed in Jesus, etc. So there's this unique thing in which people today just imagine if they've not read these texts. Oh yeah, you know, um, it's, it's just, you know, a misuse of scripture. Oh, God just winked at slavery. No, the truth is the Bible supported slavery. The writers of the Bible were very much creating a system that allowed for it to keep going. Now, did Americans perfectly enact that? No, of course not. But the point is, without the heart of God, without the character of God, what was to make you think that you should stop? There's no verse in the Bible that says slavery should end. There's, mm -hmm. no, there's nothing there to tell you this is only for a time. Yeah. So unless you on your own volition say this is wrong— and say we must reject it, then it would never change. And so what's so fascinating to then keep that in mind is to realize that, you know, most people just gave up those verses. 
they accepted and highlighted, again, the gospel. They highlighted the life of Jesus and his teachings, and they made that the center, not the literal rules that God had given. And then they just basically said no to those rules. Hmm. Whether consciously or just unconsciously, there was a disconnect between what they what those rules said and what God seemed to be saying in Jesus, and they accepted what God was saying in Jesus, and they basically said no. So what you kind of realize, um, and, and if I could push this even further, today our, our biggest issue seems to be in terms of popularity, homosexuality, right? Mm. And so if you broach that topic right, all Christians, including all Adventists, have said no to God in regards to homosexuality. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal. We've all said no to things in the Bible that are said by God, because what does the Bible actually say in, in the Hebrew Bible? It says that, you know, you are to kill um, somebody if they uh, if one guy sleeps with another guy. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is that is the rule. Um, no Christians today would feel comfortable hearing somebody in church say we should go fulfill the law and kill them. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Yeah. Like if, if there was a guy who raised their hands and said, yeah, we should do that, someone in the church might call 911 and let them know there's a violent in- instigator here, um, <laughs> a little crazy person, right? Like this is a yeah. problem. Uh, there, people, was, there was that I politician think, recently who, who argued that they should pass a law. But yeah, like it's so yeah, outlandish. No, no. You know what I mean? Like it's so outlandish. I'm trying that. to avoid the politicians because they, they tend to be the craziest. Um, <laughs> but, but you're but so right. Is, yeah, is, like, in a regardless of what position we take, we're already saying no to one aspect of it. Right. And, and, yeah. and even, even if people try to think in their heads, well, I'm just going ahead and, and leaving that to God and the future to do. The truth of the matter is that's not what the text said. The text gave you a very specific command. It says very specifically what must be done. And you have abrogated that. On what basis? Oh, well, Jesus says vengeance is mine. Well, Jesus says to love your neighbor. Well, Jesus, right? You've already done an interpretive mood, a move in which you've taken one text and another text that don't greatly match up, and you've made one the controller of the other. So you've said no to some things that God supposedly said in order to say yes to other things that God said. And it's important to realize that that's happening consciously because most of the problems we have now are just people debating back and forth as if they're not aware that they are doing this, that they are in fact already involved in confrontations with scripture. So there's this false dichotomy that conservatives have imagined in which they think to themselves, well, it's the liberals who don't accept the authority of scripture, and I do. And the liberals think to themselves, well, it's, you know, these individuals over here who don't accept the heart of God, and I do. And the truth of the matter is, we're all in agreement, we're just not all visually recognizing it's happening. We are all inevitably having to make decisions about what texts are in fact the heart and character of God versus what texts may not be best reflective of that. And we're making those interpretive decisions But if we're not consciously thinking about it, and that's really why I wrote the book, if we're not consciously thinking about how we're doing this, then we may end up mixing up what we think is the heart of God with what we just want. Mm -hmm. And then if we do that, we run into the danger of not actually making a difference between our personal opinion and desire versus what in fact is 
the actual opinion and desire of where God is pointing to, right? There's the difference between a trajectory of Scripture going in a certain direction versus I want it to go this way, right? Mm -hmm. Today, people could still choose to take those verses about slavery and say, we should do them. I think they're more important than what the gospel says, and we should take this literal words. You could still have that direction go that way, but you have to have some sort of a rule in your head for why one kind of view goes more towards the heart of God versus another. And that's what my book in the second half is really trying to kind of center on. In fact, I have a whole chapter for those concerned. I have a whole chapter on the wrong ways to say no to God, because we we have stories in the Bible in which people argue against God and they don't win. Or if they win, it's a really bad thing that they won. But what's unique and what I try to show in that is that even in those cases, those stories, um, in fact, every time like that, the people who lose the battles with God, who when God you know reprimands them for saying no, it's because what they say no to is not the heart of God, mm. right? Like like Jonah says no to God because God wants to forgive the Ninevites, and what Jonah wants is God to wipe them out, yep. right? So he hates these people. So he says no to God for the wrong reasons. Xenophobia, hate. He says, no, you know, I want a God who's a nationalistic, you know, Israeli God who will kill his enemies. And God's like, well, that's the wrong way to say no to me because you're not, I'm being who I am and you don't like me. Mm. You don't like my heart and that's your problem. So, right, you have to be very careful. You, you want to say yes to God by saying no to the wrong thing, you know, to the bad things. You want to reject the bad to say yes to the good, because the last thing any of us want to do is end up fulfilling Isaiah's warning about those who call evil good and good evil. That's right. right? Yeah. You know, that's, that's the danger that this all comes down to is to say, you know, you don't want to call evil good just because there's a Bible text. That's right. Absolutely, man. And, and that's, that's the practical sort of place that this entire thing lands in because, and, and I want to close with this. Um, we're at, uh, we're at, we're at an hour and 13, so we'll have to wrap up soon, but uh, I, I want to, I want to close by, by focusing on this idea of like, if we embody this heart of God priority in our faith, in the application of our faith, in the experimentation and exploration of our faith. Um, what does that look like? Like, how does that impact the way in which we reach out to people around us, not only in our local churches, but also in our personal lives? Because I really feel like what you're highlighting in this book, you know, like, I mean, we've, we've all seen the videos of families, you know, um, who disown their kids and, you know, Sometimes people film it in their homes where their parents are yelling, and, you know, get out. I hate you. You're going to hell because the kid came out and said, I'm gay. Right. Um, and these people think that they're doing God a favor. You know, they, they think they're they're standing up for his standards and his holiness, etc. Um, and those are some, of the, some sort of dramatic examples. But there's so many cases and it's complex, but there's so many cases in our personal lives in local churches where people are so concerned with upholding some particular rule that they end up reflecting what, what, what Ellen White refers to as the misapprehension of God, right? The world is filled with a mm-hmm. misapprehension of his character. Well, how is it filled with a misapprehension of his character? Uh, because that's what we reflect. You know, we live out in practical ways. We conduct ourselves in ways that communicate to others 
God is vengeful and and tyrannous and autocratic and you know and 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 yeah just you know nationalist like you were mentioning you know or, or xenophobic like we conduct ourselves in ways that that can lead to those people to those conclusions so that's the kind of the question I want to wrap up with um and and look man for those of you guys who haven't read the book like there's so much more in the book like you get your hands on it because this is like <laughs> scratching the surface you know um but yeah, let's let's close with that. Like, how do you feel if if local churches, if you know, not just Adventists, but just Christians in general, embraced this idea of the heart of God as the priority by which we interpret and apply our faith? What would that do for mission? I think it'd be incredible because one of the things that has crippled us so deeply is that we are constantly locked in divides and debates that pretty much focus and kind of orient themselves regarding the question of inerrancy or whether or not you're obeying God's law or whether you're a heretic or et cetera. Like all of our fights that we have in our inner church struggles that kind of prevent us from mission are always related to these issues. So again, like when you start having questions about women in ministry, what does it come down to? It comes down to people arguing, ah, but this verse says this, ah, but this verse says this. And what you'll have is you'll have a, a you know, this same kind of confrontation in which a Stephen Bohr will say, uh, you can't negate what the clear word of God says in Paul's letter of, you know, First Timothy by what Paul seems to say in principle over here. You know, for, for Bohr, the principle does not matter more than the direct, you know, statement that you have over here. And so I'll take the statement over the principle. We're, and so we're having these same debates that still match on perfectly to how slavery and Hebrew 6 and a bunch of other issues we fought about match on. And the problem is, as long as we keep this divide and this sort of blindness to what we're doing, we're going to still not be able to do mission. We're still not going to be able to move beyond our own little cloistered circles because we're too busy walking in our circle over and over again, yelling at each other, not realizing that, hey, if we can actually recognize that we're all doing the same thing, but it's a question of how we do it, then we can actually have a conversation in which everyone in the church, whether they're liberal or whether they're conservative, can come together and actually speak to one another, speak the same language to one another, and actually be seeking after the same trajectory. Because like in our current debates, it's not even clear we're all really searching for the same uh, you know, direction. Uh, because we're all too busy trying to stake out our part in the debate and try to claim that we've got the winning argument. If we can reorient ourselves towards the direction we should be going, then we can actually start heading towards where God is calling us to be. And, you know, I think one thing we, we didn't mention here is like um, the story of Jacob, um, where in Genesis 32, uh, you know, a, a mysterious individual comes and attacks Jacob and Jacob's wrestling for his life. You know, this individual has come to curse him, to hurt him. And Jacob is just, you know, wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And when the light starts to shine, the morning, you know, dawns, he recognizes that this figure is divine. According to Jacob, it's God. Um, you know, according to a prophet, it's the ambassador of God, an angel, whichever. It stands for God. It's God's power, his holiness. And Jacob, instead of going, oh, God seeks to curse me. Okay, uh, your will be done. I'll back off. Instead, Jacob demands 
you're not a curse. You're a blessing. I want a blessing. I'm not going to let you leave this and leave me with thinking God wanted to curse me. You're going to prove to me that God wanted a blessing and you're going to give it to me. And what does God do? He says, okay, I'm going to give you a personal blessing and I'm going to bless all the people who come after you. I'm going to call you Israel. What does Israel mean in the story? Those who fight God. And why am I giving you this as a blessing? Because you have defeated God. Hmm. Now, that is so important because it both sums up what the first half of the book is doing and what we're called to as in the personal ministry in the church in the second half. And that is that Jacob refused to accept the image of God as a curse and sought with all his heart and wrestling to get a blessing. And what is the blessing that he and everyone who follows gets? That they will continue to fight the image of God as a curse in order to continue to affirm that God is blessing. Right. So this is the, the circle that is created, that the people of Israel, and that stands as well for spiritual Israel, for the descendants of Abraham's promise, Christians, that we are called to fight the images of God that look like they curse, that look like they are you know, more akin to the devil, that look like they are the things that continue to enwrap us in controversy. We are to wrestle with those things, to reject them as a curse, to demand that they are a blessing. And God is excited and happy that our evolution will continue to grow in our understanding of who God is. Mm. Because, you know, at one time we thought slavery made sense with God. And now we go, there's no compatibility between those two things. Mm. So that's what this, this wrestling with Jacob is supposed to bring. We reject the idea that God has cursed people to become slaves. We, we demand the blessing that God wants human freedom for all people. That's part of the process. So when churches as communities are looking at this idea and thinking, how can it help my community? The, the whole point of where it is going towards is to say, can we get our eyes on Jesus? Can we get our eyes on the gospel? And can we recognize that what we're wrestling against is a unified thing? We are not wrestling about whether or not you can read the Bible better than I can read the Bible. Hmm. The hermeneutic that guides us is Jesus. And if our eyes are not set on him, we are not going to figure out where the heart of God is. We are going to be just as blind as the religious leaders who did not see the heart of God in Jesus and in fact thought that Jesus was from the devil. That is where we'll end up and where we have sometimes been because we are not paying attention to Jesus and who he is. Instead, we're too busy trying to say Jesus has to be what we think these certain verses in Scripture tell him he has to be, which again just brings us back to the first century. <laughs> and you know, um, you just made this this statement that raised uh, a comparison in my mind where you said that you know, the religious leaders, they, they looked at Jesus like he was of the devil. Um, and they did. You know, we see that in Scripture, that they looked at him as though he was he was of the devil. And it's really, really interesting because one of the points you, that you mentioned in your book <clears throat> um, with the abolitionist movement is that the Christians who were arguing from Scripture that slavery was God-approved, they, they were also teaching that the abolitionist movement was of the devil, you know? And mm -hmm. I just find that contrast... You know, really interesting that it's the people who are trying their hardest to be the most literal who refer to Jesus as the devil and also the abolitionist movement as as the devil. And and yeah, like there's 
you know, it's it's one thing to say, you know, hey, we're going to pontificate about this because it has theological interest. But the thing, and I hope it's the thing that everyone who's listening to this walks away with, is that our understanding of God's character and how that trickles down into the everyday actions of our faith has severe implications when it comes to human rights. It has, you know, yes. huge implications when it comes to um, matters of conscience. And ultimately, it has huge, and, and this is of extreme passion to the Adventist community, it has huge implications for how people understand who God is and what he's like. Like, as a movement, our purpose is to reveal to the world, right? as Ellen White say, the last uh, the, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is this revelation of his character of love. Well, how is that revelation to take place? Is it just televangelists or is it a community of people who embody and conduct themselves in a way that reflects that love when it comes to immigrants and when it comes to, you know, refugees and, and all of the crazy things that we're dealing with that are so politicized today? Is, it, is there a way that we can say, you know, forget the politics. Here's the heart of God and here's how it leads me to pour love out into these broken spaces. Um, bro, oh man, we're a minute 23 in. I don't think I've ever had an interview like go to a minute, uh, an hour and 23. <laughs> and I don't want it to end, but look, let's do this. Um, let's let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, I got to get my kids to school in the morning and it's getting a bit late. I've absolutely loved this, bro. This has just been brilliant, powerful, challenging. I undoubtedly, you know, I do do not doubt that some have, at least at some portions, been uncomfortable as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really want to challenge you guys, man. Get a copy of Matthew's book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Look, even if you don't agree with every point, the overarching message of the book is something that I want all of us to think really deeply about all right think about it look for ways in which you can embody it in your life because it is brilliant and it is so needed um uh, matt here's how i want to end bro um if someone wants to get a copy of your book and if they want to follow your content get in touch with you um check out your ministry some more how can they do that Sure. So if people want to uh, check out my book, obviously it's available at any bookseller and certainly it's available on Amazon, which is usually where most people buy the book. So um, if people want to see like the website for the book, the website is uh, sayingnotogod.com. Uh, if people want to check up on me, they can go to my personal website, uh, Matthew J. Cortman.com. That'd be M A T T H E W. Uh, J-K-O-R-P-M-A-N.com. Um, so uh, you can go there. I have a Facebook page. I have a, um, a, a Twitter, at M. Cortman. Uh, so people can get in touch with me and talk with me. I'm very open about discussing things with people if they're curious about reaching out. Um, and I, I definitely hope to uh, just kind of leave on one note as well. If anybody here is like, man, I don't know, this this sounds like some crazy new idea, even though you're saying, you know, I haven't heard this before, just feel feel comforted inside that, you know, Ellen White, uh, Ellen White to a certain degree recognized this idea and wrote about it, that Martin Luther emphasized it heavily, John Calvin uh, emphasized it, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, like, You'd be surprised at how many people have had and recognized this phenomenon. Um, the only thing I'll claim that I'm doing unique here is just putting it in a book and, and, tr and also talking as an Adventist about it and highlighting it. But otherwise, this is, I'm not claiming this is a new idea. It's just, 
it's something that has operated on the fringe of our consciousness. Um, and I think it's something that's at the very heart of what it means to be the people of Israel. And so I think and hope that, you know, people will be able to have the chance to uh, evaluate this idea for themselves. Uh, it, there's so much scripture in this book, as you know, Marcus, like mm-hmm. uh, people... People do not, this is not a book of theory. It's not me sitting there pontificating about the implications. People can just read the texts, read the scriptures, and they will, I think, come to the conclusion that whether they agree with me in every aspect, the trajectory the book's pointing in seems to be what scripture points in. And if Absolutely. if that's the case, that's that's all that matters to me. That's a win, man. That's a win. Absolutely. Oh, man, Matt, I've really enjoyed this, bro. Um, We're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you guys for taking the time to hang out with the Story Church podcast. I just want to close by reminding everyone to make sure you check out The Haystack, thehaystack thehaystack.org. The Haystack is a sponsor of the Story Church podcast. They focus on life, culture, and theology, and they do some really, really great work, especially if you're a millennial Adventist. You want to check it out because they are the voice of millennials in the Adventist church. All right, guys, thank you so much for spending this time, and I will catch you next week.